following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. He says this, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's that's not even half of it. He goes on from there with the same rapid fire. Um, and it really all comes under this one heading of uh, let love be genuine. And that's really the, the heading of this whole section. And what literally Paul says there is love without hypocrisy. Right? And the word hypocrite, of course, you probably all know a hypocrite is what? An actor, right? An actor, not a deceiver. A hypocrite is actually somebody who who acts, who does this on purpose. <laughs> They're not trying to trick anybody, but in, in Greek culture, when you'd have a stage play or a show, uh, the people who got up on stage and performed were the hypocrites. Right? They were the actors. Uh, so Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, uh, which implies that there can be a love that is an act. <laughs> right? There can be a love that's just pretend. And he says, your love should not be like that. Uh, and the, the truth is that in the church, we all know we're supposed to be nice to each other, right? Because we've heard sermons about this. We know we're supposed to be polite and we're supposed to like people, right? And it's quite easy to put that on as a show. So when I go to church, I don't really like any of these people. I certainly don't love them, but I don't want them to know that, right? So I'm going to put on a happy face and I'm going to smile and I'm going to be as polite as possible and I'm going to be nice, right? And then when I go home, I'll go back to my normal self. Well, that, that's acting out the part. Paul says, Don't, that's not what love is about. It is not like the Pharisees. You know, Jesus accused the Pharisees of, be, of being actors. He says, it's not real. It's not genuine in your life. You're just putting on a mask and a show. And Paul says here, love should not be fake. It should not be an act or a show or pretend. What God wants from us is to actually, really... Love each other in the same way that God loved us. And in Romans 5, he tells us that God loved us in this way, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that God's talking about. And love is an action. Love is a verb. Love does something. And in this passage, he talks kind of bullet fire, point by point, some of the things that love does. It's not so much a description like 1 Corinthians 13 that really defines what love is. Um, and some of it may not so much connect to love directly. But what Paul's saying here is if we truly love people, not just to show, if we truly, genuinely, actively love people, these are some of the things that will be true of our life. These are some of the things that we will be engaged in, that our life will be about. And so he gives in these few verses uh, six things uh, that, um, that he describes as love. And in this section, he talks about love at really two levels. One level is how we love each other within the family of God, the body of Christ. 
Uh, and, and in Scripture, love is not always practiced or exercised equally. There are kind of concentric circles of how love works. Uh, the innermost circle would be how we love our family, our, our wives, husbands, parents, children. Right? And that's really the first priority of love. And the people we spend the most time with, and the, the people where love is tested most uh, and challenged the most often. Right? Second tier, second circle, would be people within the family of God. So we love our family first. We are to love the church second. And that's why it's really important as we come together on Sunday mornings. Church, you know, it's partly about singing. It's partly about hearing a, a sermon. But really, church is about living in community. Um, the song and the sermon may be just a good excuse for all, us to show up and sit next to each other and take a few minutes to sit next to somebody we don't know who is a family member in Christ and to build relationship with them. And we'll see as we go through this why that's important. Um, that's what the church is. The church is a living organism of relationships. So you need to be building those. And then finally, uh, we are to love the world. We are to love people who don't know Christ. Uh, but the, our love for them will be expressed differently than how we love people uh, sitting next to you in this room. People who are in the church, in the body of Christ. So here's what he says. Six... six um, Six shots at what love is. First of all, he says love follows a moral compass. Okay, love is moral. Uh, he puts it this way. Um, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Right? The word abhor has the idea of deep revulsion and hatred. Okay, If I were to put this in terms of food, for me, the deep abhorrence, hatred, loathing on the food scale would be liver. Okay? Yeah. And um, I, I stay as far away from liver as possible. Right? I abhor it. I hate it. I run from it. Flee from liver. Okay? That's my motto. Okay? On the, on the other side of... It says, it says literally, abhor, hate, despise evil cling or stick to, get glued to what is good. So, of course, on the food scale, that would be chocolate. <laughs> right? I'm all over it. It's all over me. I'm glued to chocolate, right? Um, he says, love cannot be exercised or practiced without moral choices. Okay? Love is not just a feeling. Love is not just emotionalism. Uh, even though that's what the world sells it, markets love as you know, I feel good. I have this romantic encounter. I feel good. And whatever I do to increase that experience of emotional high, of feeling good about things, is okay. Because that's what love is in the world's eyes, right? But, but Paul's very clear. Love has moral boundaries. Love makes moral choices. Some things are evil. Some things are good. We are to hate those things that are evil, and we are to glue ourselves, stick ourselves to things that are good. Um, so, uh, and here's the difficult thing. Uh, thinking in the context outside the church, but even inside the church, when we're dealing with, with believers, Christians, people, we always love people. We are to love them in the church, out of the church, we are to love people. But loving people does not mean we always accept or condone their sin. Love does not say, well, you know, you're sinning, 
Your lifestyle is in rebellion to God, but because I love you, it's no big deal. Okay, Paul says no. He says we are to flee. We are to hate. We are to abhor and, and, and be repulsed by what is evil. We are to be sticking to what is good. So we are always going to make moral, conscious choices about our lifestyle, our conduct, and our behavior. So it means that uh, if we know people who are practicing immoral lifestyle, whether it's homosexuality or having a marital affair or whatever, right? We do take a stand against that, right? Loving them doesn't mean we accept them and we wash over their sin, right? We hate what is evil. And of course, certainly in our own life, it means we love people by making right moral, moral choices. So, you know, we've all heard uh, you know, this scenario, uh, guy and girl not married young, college age, and the guy wants to have sex with his girlfriend, so he uses this line. If you love me, you would do this. Right? And the girl should always say, if you think that's true, you have no idea what love is. Right? Because love clings to what is good and right, not what is evil and immoral. Right? So love is um, it's not just being nice. It's not accommodating people's sin. It's taking a stand for things that are right and wrong. And it's telling people that. Right? It is not loving to ignore when somebody's sinning and you know about it and keeping your mouth shut. Right? We need to, in love, because, because the way to do this not in love, right? But in love, we need to confront those in, in the body. And again, the context of all these verses for Paul is, in this section, is in the body of Christ. You know, people outside the body of Christ, of course, they're going to sin. If we don't confront them about their sin, uh, because that's what they're supposed to do. It's their job. But for people in the church who have been come under the power of the gospel, okay, Romans 6, 7, 8, he's talking about our lives being changed through the work of Christ. We no longer are slaves to sin. We're no longer under the power and dominion of evil. And we are to be set free from the bondage of our own sinfulness. Right? So love confronts those things around us in people that we care about. Right? We, in gentleness and in humility, uh, speak to them and we see things in their life that are sinful. And likewise, we should be open and, and ready for people to speak to us about things in our life that are sinful. Right? Sin ha- uh, uh, love has a moral compass. Okay? And Paul starts off right there. Love has a moral compass. It, it, it hates evil. It sticks to what is good. Um, and it is, in a sense... Fiercely moral. Um, uh, and Jesus was fiercely moral. Now, does that mean that he was better than the sinners? No, he ate with the sinners and the tax collectors. He loved them. Right? But he did not condone or excuse their sin. He called them to repentance. He called them to change their lifestyle. So that's the first one. Love follows a moral compass. second one, love makes us like family. Right? And Paul says it this way in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And again, Paul in this section uses strings together words. And in this, he actually uh, uses two different words for love that come from a similar root. The first one, the very familiar word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, right? 
The second word is another philo word that's related to the brotherly love word, but has more the connection of uh, the mutual love and family relationships between a husband and wife or parent and child, child and parent. Uh, and he basically says, uh, if, if I were to try to translate it directly, he, he says, brotherly love one another with family affection. Okay, brotherly love one another, bad English, I know, with family affection. And what he's emphasizing here is that the love kind of relationship we have within the church is very much family. Right? We love each other, not uh, as just friends, but as family. So how do we compare family love versus friend love? Uh, how is family love different? Well, for one, it is, dif- it is different in its depth of commitment and duty. Um, we are, like it or not, uh, obligated to love our family. Right? We are commissioned by God for our husband, our wife, our children, our parents, uh, our, our, our family, to love them unconditionally. Right? Um, now, uh, we are, of course, love our friends. Okay, so now all of a sudden we've got friend, wife. Okay, who, who trumps? You better say wife. Okay? You better say wife. All right? Fail in the way we're normal. Okay? Not that they're normal, really, but they're normal like we're normal. Right? Versus different kind of normal. Well, family, you know, we don't pick them, we're stuck with them, and a lot of them are normal differently. Right? And they drive us crazy. Right? They can drive us crazy. And honestly, sometimes family... We, we would not want to be around, right? You get the invitation to the dreaded family reunion, and you start thinking of people that you think, oh man, are they going to be there, you know? Right? Uh, same thing's true in the church, right? Not everybody in church are people that we would choose as friends. Right? Just because we have commonness in Christ doesn't mean we're normal the same way. And especially in a church like ours right here where we have people from so many different languages and backgrounds and cultures and denominational histories, right? We won't always line up on the same page with things. Okay? But Paul says, love in the church is to be family love. We don't pick and choose. We love people because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if they drive us crazy. Right? Even if we don't understand them. Even if we don't like them. We are to love them as family, he says. Um, thirdly, uh, love, family love must be unconditional. Right? We are to love people even when they drive us crazy. Even when we just can't stand to be around them. Then, maybe especially then, is when we practice true Christ-like love. When we accept them and we are patient with them and we show kindness and care to them even though it's hard, right? It's hard. Um, and you know, it's, he, Paul's talking here about how we treat others, but the good news is this is what the church is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a place where I can come with all my quirks and all my faults and failures and all my obnoxious personality, and I can find a place where people will love and accept me. Right? And the good news is, when we're around that, that kind of loving acceptance, it's transforming. Right, uh, and slowly we are to rub off the rough edges of each other through love, through accepting and caring for people who are difficult, 
by experiencing love and kindness when we are difficult. Um, love makes us like family. Um, and we are to uh, love each other. We are to love all within the church. Uh, now, of course, you say, well, you know, the church has how many millions of people in the world? How can I love them all? Well, that's why God called us to local communities of faith. We're to love Christians in the church, our, our, the body of Christ everywhere, but we're to love especially those who we share together a certain community of faith. That's why the local church is so important. And again, it's not just showing up here in a sermon, giving some money and going on your merry way. Somewhere in the hallway, you should, you should rub shoulders with somebody and build a relationship. They're your family, right? You should be connecting with people. You should be getting to know people. You should be uh, building into their lives. Not because you have a lot in common. Not because they're the first person you would pick as a friend. But because we share life together as the family of God, the body of Christ. Um, I hear this often, and, and, and it's hard. You know, we all live here, and the truth is, for many of us, our emotional community the local church that we most identify with, that we have the longest relationship with, is back in our home country. And I hear this all the time. I, say, I hear people say, well, I don't, I don't do church here because my church is back home. Right? Well, you know, you can't do community from 12,000 miles away. Sorry. Right? You need people in your life here and now. Things are going to happen in your life. Things are going to happen in the life of the person next to you. And you need each other. You need their love and support and encouragement. Too many people wait until it's too late, and crisis comes up in their life, difficulties struggle, and they find themselves isolated and alone because they haven't taken the time to reach out and connect with others. So here's another great excuse. I've heard people say this. Well, you know, I went to church, and nobody was nice to me. Nobody talked to me. Nobody invited me to lunch, so I just left. Well, here's the deal, right? You've got to take some initiative, right? You can't wait for everybody to come like you. Paul doesn't say, you know, sit around and mope around until other people love you. Right? That's not what he says here. He says, love each other, love one another with brotherly affection. You've got to get out of your shell, you introverts like me, you know? And it's painful. I know how it is. It's painful. But we've got to connect with people. You've got to take the initiative and effort. If you feel lonely and isolated and nobody is talking to you, talk to them, right? Engage somebody. Invite somebody out for coffee. Um, invite them out for ice cream. I don't know. Do something, right? Connect with people. Connect with people. You should have an ever-growing, uh, expanding circle of relationships within the body of Christ. And it's especially important here because people are always leaving, Right? And if you're not constantly reaching out and, and uh, building relationships, welcoming new people in, pretty soon all your friends are going to be gone. I've had this happen. I started three different cell groups, right? And every one of them, within two years, all, they all left, right? So I gave up. <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore. But I can't give up, right? I can't give up. I've got to keep trying. I've got to keep connecting. Because God doesn't say, you know, only those who are in your life forever are the family of God. He says, the people you worship with, your local fellowship of believers, these are your spiritual family, and you need to love them. Uh, I like he, he uh, puts one other twist in this. He says also, uh, go overboard to show each other honor. Right? 
see who can outdo each other in giving honor and praise to your family, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we are to be reaching out to each other, uh, loving them, giving them honor, giving them praise, giving them affirmation, acknowledging them. Uh, and, and, you know, we all need this, right? Does anybody here not need uh, an occasional pat on the back, right? We need this. The fact that the deal is, if other people would pat you on the back more often, maybe you wouldn't strain yourself trying to pat yourself on the back, right? Kind of how it works. We, we need to be affirmed. God made us that way. And he put us in a body of Christ of, among a community of people who are supposed to be encouraging us. Um, blessing us with kind words, with praise, with words of affirmation. Uh, several years ago, we, we had this church planting summit here in Chiang Mai and um, had about 200 Thai and Burmese pastors. And I, uh, I was teaching on uh, John 17 where Jesus uh, talks about being one in Christ. And, and in the middle of the, those two verses where, where Jesus calls us to be one, in the middle he says something about... Um, that Jesus gave us his glory. Right? He, he honors us. And uh, I was really struck with that, how we ought to be doing the same. We ought to be glorying, honoring each other. So during this conference, we had kind of three tiers of people. We had the foreigner bigwigs, you know, the important people that we invited who came from other countries. And what I did is I had them stand up and I had them honor all the Thai pastors. And they applauded them, they affirmed them, they stood up and really said, you know, we... We, we're here to serve you because you guys are, uh, are, are out there sharing the gospel. We want to praise and honor uh, and respect you. And boy, the Thai pastors like that because that's not common. You know, that's not something that's really a part of their experience. And they were quite blessed by that. So then I, I had the Burmese pastors stand up. And I said to the Thai pastors, okay, you've been blessed. You've been honored. Now I want you guys to honor the Burmese pastors. Right? And uh, boy, the, the Thai pastors got a hold of that. And they did an incredible job honoring these Burmese guys. And a lot of these guys during the conference had shared just the hardship and struggle that they had gone through and uh, a lot of opposition from the government. Um, and, and as the Thai pastors and the, and the foreigners honored these Burmese, a lot of these guys just broke down crying, right? just weeping. And a lot of them said afterward, I have never in my life had anybody tell me that they appreciated what I did. Right? I've never had anybody honor me like that. And they were blessed. They were hugely blessed. Now, how sad. How sad. We need to do that in the body of Christ. Right? It's hard. And we need to be honoring each other and affirming one another. Uh, third thing. Love gives us energy for service. He says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Um, love gives us energy to do all this stuff. Love gives us the energy to honor people and to say nice things, right? Um, and Paul says, Don't get lazy in your zeal. Don't get lazy in your zeal. We're to have a certain passion about us when it comes to loving people. We're not supposed to do this casually or um, in, a, in a manner that's bored or complacent. We're to love people zealously. Right? And true love, not just, and here's the deal, when we're acting, 
where we're just hypocrites or we're just putting on a show, loving people is exhausting, right? When it's just an external thing that we're doing because it's duty, because it's what we're supposed to do and it's not really from the heart, it wears us out. But when we truly love people, and we truly have a passion because we care about people, there is something energizing and vitalizing about that. Here's how it works. When I was first dating Denise, I was super in love. And I was energized, right? Um, I was energized. And Denise would say things like, hey, let's go shopping. And I would go, yeah, let's go shopping. Okay? Right? Now, you know, I like shopping about as much as I like getting tied to a cactus. Right? <laughs> Not my first choice, right? But when I was in love... And I had this zeal and this passion. Well, everything was exciting. I couldn't wait to do it, right? But then what happens? You know, many years go by, and the zeal diminishes. And I start getting lazy. Denise says, let's go shopping. And I go, really? Didn't we just go shopping like last year? We got to go again? And I start getting lazy. And my zeal wanes. But the issue, the problem is not zeal. Okay. The problem is love. What's waning, what's diminishing is my, is my love. I no longer care as much as I did then. Love, if we truly are working at loving people, if we're truly letting God's love fill us so that we love people, that love motivates us. It turns us up. It gives us zeal and it keeps us from being lazy. So here's the thing. If you are feeling worn out and weary and complacent in your ministry, in your family, in your life, you need to ask yourself, am I, is my love diminishing? Am I letting love slip? Right? Is that why I'm feeling weary? Am I just acting? And have I let the love in my heart grow cold and weak? Well, how do you fire it up? Suppose you're there. How do you charge up your heart with new, fresh doses of love? Well, Paul says this. He says, uh, simply, uh, get fired up by the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, the word literally is to be boiled, to be set on fire by the Spirit. Okay, love doesn't originate or come from us. It comes from God. It comes through His Spirit. And if you feel love slipping in your life and you don't have energy, you don't have uh, the enthusiasm for ministry and loving people like you once did, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to get some rest, physical rest. Because right? it does take energy to love people. And if you're worn out and stressed out and burned out and you have not been getting rest, you need to take some days off and get sleep. Because right? you need physical energy to do this. Um, as you get some physical rest, you need to get in the Word. And you need to let God remind you of how much He loves you. And Scripture's full of it. You don't have to read very far before you find God telling you, by the way, I love you. Right? I love you more than you can imagine. Get in the Word. Let God minister to you. And then pray for a new infusion of the Holy Spirit. Right? We need to get set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Now, getting, now, this is just, some people like this whole setting on fire thing, you know. And they picture getting set on fire by the Holy Spirit as having some huge emotional ecstatic experience, right? If I'm set on fire by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be, you know, 
getting all excited, I'm going to be speaking in tongues, or I'm going to be doing something way out there, right? That's what it means to get set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Well, in this context, Paul says this. This is how you tell you're set on fire by the Holy Spirit. He says, he says you're set on fire by the Holy Spirit. You will show it by what? By serving. <laughs> okay? By serving. I like the whole excited thing better, right? By serving... If we're set on fire by the Holy Spirit and He's kindled a true love from God in us, it will find expression by how we serve people in the body of Christ. We will have a new zeal and a new passion for serving. We may not feel all that excited. Okay? We, may not, we may not be on some emotional, ecstatic high. We may. But we will have a heart to serve. To give our life in kind, simple, loving service to others. Uh, now, of course, you can serve without loving. That's the Martha syndrome, right? And again, when it's acting, when it's just being a hypocrite, putting on a show, we can serve. But this is the person who serves out of great duty and obligation, right? Well, I guess if no one else will teach Sunday school, I'll teach Sunday school. Because right? if I don't, Robin will hit me up and I'll feel bad, so I'll do it. Because I'm such a servant, right? Well, that's a great way to burn out, I'll tell you what, right? When everything is a drudgery and a burden, and that was Martha, right? She was bitter and resentful in her service because it wasn't motivated by love. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a service that is lit on fire by a passion that comes from the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, and we serve because we love serving people. And we are energized by it. We are energized by it. Number four, uh, love gives perspective in hardship. Uh, verse, I don't know, verse 14? No, verse 12. There we go, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Um, the truth is, uh, getting lit on fire by the Holy Spirit, loving people, serving, doesn't mean life's going to get easier or that things are going to always go smoothly. In fact, for the early church in, in Rome, throughout in, in Paul's day, there was a lot of persecution and suffering. There was a lot of difficulty. Um, where do we as believers get our joy from? What is the source for us of joy in life? Well, for most people, not Christians, but many Christians, but for most people, joy is derived by our circumstances. That's why everybody wants to win the lottery, right? Because if I win the lottery... I'm going to be happy because my circumstances will greatly improve. If I get the right job with a good paycheck, I'll be happy because my circumstances will improve. If I get you know, to live in the place I want to live, I get the house I want, I get the car I want, I get all the circumstances in my life line up well, I'll be happy. And it's true that to some extent, you know, when life is easier and circumstances line up, there is a certain kind of joy in that. And uh, I'm not looking for the opposite, honestly. I'm happy when life works well, and there is a kind of joy in that. But the truth and the reality is when you look at people who have everything, people who are abundantly successful, people who have fame and wealth beyond imagination, a lot of them are just flat, not happy people. Right? Their life is joyless. And here's why. Because joy cannot derive from our today only. 
In fact, real joy, Paul says, derives from a confidence not about now, but a confidence about tomorrow. You know, it doesn't matter how much you have now, you could die tomorrow, right? And lose it all. Uh, you, no matter how much you have in the stock market today, tomorrow the stock market could crash and you could lose it all, right? No matter how fancy your house is today, an earthquake could come or a fire and it could fall to the ground and be destroyed and you lose it, right? True joy comes from confidence about what's going to happen next. Right? So this is Christmas joy, right? You know the Christmas joy? It's like the week before Christmas when you were a kid and you start getting excited, right? And you have joy. Do you have joy because of what you have right then? No. You have joy because of what you think you're going to get on Christmas morning, right? And you've made your wish list, you've told Santa, you've written letters, you've petitioned Congress, you know. You have made clear what you want and you are hopeful, that you're going to get it and you start getting excited, not about what you have, but what you're going to get. Right? Well, that's what Paul says here. He says, uh, be joyful in hope. Right? Don't focus so much on today, because that's, that's not where it's at. What is our tomorrow? What do we have to look forward to? Because the truth is, today it may not be that great, but what's coming? Where is our Christmas? Where is our future? It's for believers in Christ, we have an incredible hope, right? Incredible hope. It's going to get a lot better. Things are going to get infinitely better for us. I'm going to get a new body that's just not going to hurt nearly as much as it does now when I get up in the morning. I'm excited about that. I'm going to be able to actually see. So when I look out at people who are far away, like you in the back, I, I can't see you, by the way. You're just this big mass of glasses and all. We're going to get a new body. We're going to get uh, a new home that will never be destroyed. We're going to get new friendships and relationships. We're going to get the very presence and glory of God for all eternity. Right? That should give us joy. Right? That should make us excited. That should make us eager with anticipation of what is to come. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the joy of the bride and groom who have been engaged and who look off into the distant day, which seems like an eternity away when they're going to get married, right? And they are anticipating the joy of coming together in, in marriage, right? But we have joy in our hope in God, incredible, glorious hope in God's abundant love for us. So because of that, he says that we can, we can persevere in stress, in hardship, in difficulty, right? We can endure. We can deal with the difficult things in life today because this is not the end, right? So he says when things get hard, life gets stressful, we endure. We just keep plugging away in hope of the future. And finally, he says that we pray steadfastly. So when we're discouraged, what do we do? We pray. When, we, when it seems impossible, what do we do? We pray, right? When nothing happens when we prayed, what do we do? We pray some more, right? And when still nothing happens, we keep praying. He says we are steadfast in prayer. Because our hope is in God. Our hope is in what He has done. So we are constantly looking to Him in prayer for the fulfillment of His promises and His Word. So we are steadfast in prayer. 
That's how we deal with the difficulties in life. We don't get discouraged. We don't give up. We are steadfast in prayer. And it's that kind of love that moves us to this life of prayer, knowing God's love for us, uh, carrying uh, our burdens to God, and also carrying the burdens of others. You know, love motivates us to share those burdens together, to pray for each other. Number five. Actually, this is the last one. Oh, I lied. I said there were six. There's only five. I can't count. Last one. Love leads to true fellowship. And he says it this way in verse uh, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, the word here used for contribute is literally the word fellowship, koinonia. Right? And what he says here is he, had, he says, have fellowship with the needs of others. Very interesting and strange way to put it, right? Like I can fellowship with you. I don't know if I want to fellowship with your needs. That's what he says. And I think it's, uh, it's significant because he's talking here about um, people who have helping those who don't have. And that was practiced in the early church. It says they shared their wealth, they shared their goods, they shared their property, they shared life together so that the wealthy had less, but the poor had a little more. And there was to be this moving growth towards equality uh, and towards sharing, right? Well, if any of you have tried to do this, you should have learned by now that it's easier said than done. Helping poor people, helping people who have less than us is complicated. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, frustratingly complicated. A couple of years ago at Christmas time, we decided to give to one of our project, Gampangan project, really poor people, we decided to give them blankets for Christmas, free blankets to bless them at Christmas time. Now, in the community, this kind of real poor area of the city where we worked, the government had already passed out blankets to all the registered people who had their, their house registration in that community. But there were about 20 families left over who didn't, right? So we thought, we'll go along and we'll bless those 20 families who did not get blankets with blankets, right? So we go at Christmas time, we buy these nice blankets, we distribute them to those 20 families who got left out. They should like that, right? No, that would be way too easy. We can cause this whole huge rift in this community. You know why? Because we bought better blankets than the government did. Right? So everybody was angry at us because our blankets were better. And they all wanted, they all wanted the blankets we gave. Right? It's complicated helping people. Uh, and, and, and giving, whether it's in the church or out, but, but even in the church, uh, we, don't want to, um, we don't want to foster dependent relationships. Right? That's not healthy. Um, we don't want to create rice Christians, you know, people who who become Christian just because it pays well, right? In fact, a recent article just came out, uh, a guy was not a Christian, but basically blasting the efforts of, of church groups, Christian groups in some of the tribal areas, because they said that uh, they would be nice gifts up to the tribes if they became Christians, but if they didn't become Christians, they would take it all back, right? Now, I don't think that's true. I think this person was probably, uh, had his agenda. But nonetheless, it's complicated, so how do we avoid some of those complications and still help people? How do we still be kind and generous to those in need? Well, Paul says, look, it's simple. When you do it in the context of relationships, you avoid a lot of those problems. 
right? When you come alongside somebody and in a relationship or friendship, you fellowship with their need. You fellowship with them in their difficulty. You do it through the context of a relationship, right? It's hard to take people, it's hard to take advantage of people who are close to you, right? You can't deceive them as easily. And, uh, True friendship will never let them stay stuck in the cause of their poverty. Help will always seek to move them to be self-sustaining. So as we do this, what Paul's picturing and talking about here is within the context, again, of the local church. Again, not that we can't help poor people outside the local church, but what he's picturing here is the working and functioning of the local church where we, in relationship, come to know each other's needs and share to help each other in relationship, in the context of community. Right? Uh, and of course, there are ways that we do help uh, beyond that. Churches helping churches, but again, it works best when it's done in fellowship. Uh, finally, he says, uh, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Uh, in Paul's days, hospitality basically meant you became uh, a 24-hour guest house. Right? Because in those days they didn't have hotels, they didn't have lodges, and so when Christians would travel, first thing they do when they came to a new town is they would look for another Christian family, and you knock on the door, and you say, do you have a room? Do you have a place where we could spend the night? And hospitality meant taking them into your home. Well, we probably don't do that so much anymore. Uh, so what does hospitality look like for us? Well, it really means just sharing your possessions, sharing your stuff. Welcoming others to use your things. How do you feel about that, right? Loaning your lawnmower. Loaning your car. Making available your house. Making available your tools, your TV, your stuff, right? Hospitality, hospitality means sharing. means inviting, welcoming others to share what you have, right? Um... Being generous. That doesn't mean we have to give it all away, but it does mean we should be willing to share it. We should be willing to make it available to others. Um, We should be people who invite others to share life with us. Um, Paul says these are the things that would mark or identify a person who has true love. It's not just acting. Um, They all involve actions. As we close, just think, you know, what are some things that I can do out of this list? What's something that just jumps out at you and goes, you know, this is something I think I could do. I could could be much more affirming and encouraging to people. And this week, I'm going to try, say once a day, I'm going to try to be affirming another believer, honoring them. Right? Maybe uh, you know of somebody in this room, somebody you have a relationship with who has a financial need. Right? You may not be able to meet all the need. But you say, you know, I could help some. I could contribute. I could come into fellowship with their need. Right? Um, what would God have you do with this? Love takes action. Right? I'll fail if we all go out of this room and we go, oh, that, was, that was interesting, and we do nothing. Right? We do nothing. God wants us to take something out of this list and do it. Right?
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.